You're listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by machinists. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson from Protium Machining, and this week I'm joined by James Milne of 5050 Knives. Welcome, James. How you going, mate? Doing well. Thanks for joining me and taking the time. No, it's my pleasure. So, where can people find you online? What does 5050 Knives do real quick? And then we'll dive into your backstory. Uh, so you can find me online at 5050knives.com, just the business name.com. And I am a small self-taught machine shop specializing in high-end kitchen cutlery and other sharp implements here in Brisbane, Australia. Yeah, some seriously lust-worthy knives too. If you guys don't follow him, please go over 50-50 with the first 50 spelled out and the second is numbers. Absolutely amazing. Like I started following you, I can't remember when, but man, every time I see something come out of your shop, I'm like, I like I wish you were closer so I could just like I'm sure importing them would be a nightmare, but like I want one so bad. Oh, no, I send all over the world and majority of the actual like buyers are from the States and like Europe. Everyone seems to have bigger wallets <laughs> outside of Australia. <laughs> well, in that case, I, I will have to put that on my, my, my list because man, they are just gorgeous. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a bit of a, a love project. You go broke pretty quick spending this much time, you know, trying to perfect things and teaching yourself all the skills you need. Obviously, like I didn't you know, do a trade or have anyone to teach me. So I've just had to learn by consistently failing and hoping to learn from said failures. <laughs> well, speaking of that, let's let's get get into your backstory. How did you get into all of this? How do you start machining? So I left the army pretty like mentally and physically broken back in mid twenty fourteen. I was a paratrooper with the RSS, which is Recon Snipers Surveillance Unit. And I have always had a love for cooking and cooking is a fun time when you have a nice knife. It is a terrible time when you have a blunt, terrible knife. It's like getting into a nice car and having like a memorable moment in a nice like sports car. You're not having a memorable moment on your daily commute in your Toyota Corolla. So that's kind of how I look at it that way and uh, anyway so when I got out I bought a chef knife called a global everyone's probably pretty familiar with them they're meant to be pretty good and they're a couple hundred dollars and I was pretty pretty devastated it lasted like a week and I was like what is going on it was like chipping out and wouldn't sharpen properly so I was like you know what screw it I'm gonna like teach myself how to make a knife just for the fun of it so like YouTubed and Googled and there's heaps of people like hand making knives and such. So that's what I got into. I got into like hand forging knives for a few years. And the company I did that under is uh, Enyati Blades. So that's N-Y-A-T-I. That is Shona. That's my local dialect from my country back in Zimbabwe in Africa. Oh, really? And it, yeah. And it means Cape Buffalo. That's kind of like my favorite animal. Anyways, that's like the logo and that's the name of my said previous brand. And I was like 40, forging high-end chef knives, you know, slowly learning while studying architecture. And it got so busy. I was like three years in back orders. Amazing. I, yeah, it's really good. Like on paper, that sounds amazing. It's like, yeah, sick. That's heaps of money coming in. Not really, because usually there's like anywhere between like 100 to 300 hours in each knife. Oh my goodness. Yeah, because like, you're trying to perfect it. You want it to be absolutely perfect so that, that person who's buying that item has that for the rest of their life and they can then pass it down to their, their kids. Like, we're not about making throwaway items at all. So, yeah, like, 
it's definitely a love thing. But then when you put it on paper, it's like, holy moly, I'm spending like 300 hours plus on this knife and I'm selling it for like a thousand bucks. There's just no financial gain to be made. And it got to the stage where I got a pretty bad like RSI on my wrist from it, from like swinging a hammer every day. And it actually crushed my hand in the army in a parachuting accident. Among oh, other wow. things. So it was starting to like really take a toll. So I was like, you know what? Surely there is a better way to make these knives and still make them to the same standard, if not better, without as much human labor. So I could obviously lower the cost and get more out there to keep up with demand. So I was like researching, looking at different things. And back in like 2015, not like there wasn't that many people machining knives that was accessible. Like you've got John from Drunk Grimsoe Knives. Who else? We had Alan. He helped me a lot. He's in the States. I forget his Instagram handle. One sec. Give him a shout out because he helped me a heap. Is he also making He uh, makes folding knives? knives. Okay. Yeah. So he's AMH Knives. His name's Alan Hollerbach. Really nice dude. That dude gave me so much time on helping me build my first CNC mill. So I took like a milling machine and fully converted it to CNC. Wow. And And that's how you started? Yeah, that's how I started. I had absolutely no idea about machining. Like my dad was a tool maker, but he wasn't around to help. But yeah, he Alan really, really helped out. Had heaps of time, you know, plug this in here, do that, do this. With we were using a, a controller called Centroid, mm-hmm. and basically the first knife I milled was my Petty. It's a small, like small kitchen knife, and I was hard milling that in my office, <laughs> like wow. at home. That's um, nice. And really quickly outgrew that to the stage I was like, wow, I've actually like screwed up here. I've spent like six months messing around with this, building this, and it now I'm like completely outgrown it like almost instantly. And so, so what year was this? This was 2017, I'd say. Okay, yeah, so not too long ago. Yeah, not too long ago. And then the first machine I got, was a really old drill mill tap, a bit like a uh, Speedio, mm-hmm. but about like nearly two tons heavier. Oh, wow. BT, BT40, had a, like a full pallet changer and stuff. It was like five grand, but it was absolutely trashed. Had been machining graphite and cast iron all its life. So oh, there's actually no. like, there's heaps of photos of it if you like scroll down on my Instagram all the way to the bottom um, of me like repairing that and rebuilding it. And cleaning yeah, it and yada yada. looking at it um, right now, the Argo or something. Yeah, the Argo. Yeah, it was a brilliant machine. Like it had such a good base. Like I just, I wish I actually had more time and money, and I would have rebuilt that machine because the foundation on it was awesome. Like, there's not many like four ton mill taps out there that are like that rigid. So yeah. back then, what was your workflow like? Because I'm looking at like your the Nitro V petties you had then, yep. were you just cutting out the the shape of them on the CNC or were you actually profiling the... or you know, Profiling, certain- milling, doing all the bevels, everything. And then oh, wow. making the handles and then hand finishing. So even my knives now, you'll see some photos and they come off pretty, pretty amazing. Like the, the bevels are so dialed in now. The surface finishes are that nice that I don't have to hand finish them, but 
there's lots of little things like blend lines and stuff that need polishing and tumbling that kind of just elevate that product to that next level. Okay. Um, and that's where 50-50 comes from. It's half machine. Okay. Yeah. So was... where did you go from the Argo? What was next after that? So if you scroll up, you'll see the next machine is still one of my favorite machines. I was a huge Deco Maho, DMG, mm-hmm. high-speed, gantry, 12-and-a-half-ton machine. So I went from this small Argo to this like insanely accurate, fast, gosh, if I crash this, I'm like ruined type of machine and i got that pretty pretty cheap because the company that was selling it had heaps of problems with it so i was like oh, i'll just take it on and I'll, I'll sit there and figure out how to like fix it so that taught me a lot about machine maintenance well so that's I've, kind of a, a a common theme it seems like in your your career yeah yeah so like i would love to have a few million in the bank and just buy all new machines and be done with it and then go on holiday every holidays but we're not there yet so I've got to get machines where I can. And here in Australia, machines are insanely expensive. We aren't lucky like everyone in the States and Europe where you've got so much to choose from. So prices are pretty low. Here, you've got machines from like the 90s that are still like 60 grand. Right, right. Yeah, it, like, it seems to be a, it's a common theme with like even uh, Clive, who was a past guest in South Africa, you know, lamented yep. about a similar thing where it was like, well, there's only so many machines coming into the country, so 100%. we got to take what you can get kind of thing. Yeah, and unfortunately, like a lot of the manufacturing here in Australia, is there's not that much high-end aerospace, medical, that are bringing in machines all the time. They usually bring them in and they run them into the ground because the import costs are just so so high and the, the time to bring a machine from, say, Europe into Australia takes so long compared to you know the more developed world like europe and america and such right so, so it's, you it's had that pickings you had the dmg right i yep. guess it was and then how did you go from that to the is it tong tai yeah tong tai yeah so i fully rebuilt that dmg i rebuilt all the hydraulic unit the hydraulic lines all the pneumatic system replaced the spindle bearings like quite a bit of work i did on that just figuring it all out and getting it back up to scratch. I then sold that because I thought I was moving shops, but I didn't end up actually moving shops. But sold that for three times the price that I paid. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I basically just like flipped machines. So we started with like a $2,000 milling machine and kind of just bought low, flipped, bought low, flip sort of thing and then the tong tie was a brand new machine so that's very similar to your like your speedio robo drill right so are, yeah. is taiwanese and chinese machine machinery easier to get in australia yeah 100 percent yeah 100 okay. a lot of people have either chinese or taiwanese machines here majority of the resellers are all taiwanese or chinese resellers highly rate the taiwanese machines like within a certain degree like that tong tie company you can't fault them i've seen robo drills and the way they're their design, a lot of their like internal layouts have a lot of like chip management issues. Like chips get packed up in certain spots. It was never an issue with the tong tie, and like a, a new spindle on a tong tie for a uh, dual contact BT thirty was like three and a half grand. Oh wow! You know, it's like it makes so much more financial sense for Australians to invest in that brand of machine and get spare parts than say a DMG where. There is no DMG tech. There's like oh. 
DMG. So you have to fly somebody out. Yeah, you got to fly somebody out. So there used to be a DMG tech here in Brisbane, but he left. And so now there is literally no DMG Brisbane, from my knowledge. So you've got to fly techs up from, say, Melbourne, uh, like two, two and a half hours away, pay for all their flights, accommodation, hourly rate there and back. It just is, yeah, it's hard. Oh, yeah. I understand. I mean, that's one reason we sold our Kitamura was if we wanted somebody to come look at the control side of it, the nearest place was in California. And so it was, I don't know, $2,000 just to start. You know, we fly them out, yep. hotel, per diem, rental car, all that stuff. Yep. It's 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 just nuts. It's I, I just don't understand how that business model works for them in these countries. But I guess financially it works for them because their biggest, you know, user base is Europe. Yeah, I just it's it's hard to buy things these days that don't have after sale support. Okay. So how is the business doing at this point? You know, you said that you were like a year behind when you were hand doing yep. now that you had this machinery where you're starting to catch up and Yeah, so we're, we're almost like completely caught up on all our orders. There was about two hundred and sixty something orders to catch up from the start of the year. And it's been a punish like it was been a much bigger undertaking than I thought it was going to be. I just assumed, you know, I'm going to upgrade to these nice new mach- newer machines and things are going to be swell, but every machine has its gremlins and there's a massive learning curve. Oh, yeah. Lots of, <laughs> I have a thing called the misery bucket and there's lots of knives in there that haven't passed the grade and just kind of get chucked. I bet, uh, yeah. So, so I guess stepping back, what... Where did you go from the Tongtai? Uh, so from the Tongtai, I sold that for double what I paid. <laughs> uh, you weren't kidding. It, it is a, a habit. Yeah, yeah. And it's, that was literally just a supply and demand thing. So I got that machine basically half the retail price, but brand new at the time because there was an influx of Taiwanese machines in Australia. No one was interested in buying. And the reseller was like, oh, I need to move this. It's a show model. So he, he literally gave it to me for half price. So I was pretty stoked. And then come last year, I sold it for double that. And that was literally, I had about six people kind of fighting over it because there was no machines in the country, COVID, you know, all the medical side had kicked up. People are doing lots of work for ventilation and et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I went to some sort of like plastic injection molding place. And uh, I didn't realize it was that recent that you sold it. Yeah, I sold it last year uh, just before I moved into this new shop. So I moved okay. into this shop about a year ago. So yeah, let's talk about that whole process of the move and the new shop and then also the, the machines you end up picking up. All right. So yeah, so I sold the Tongtai and um, at the same sort of time, the the people that I'd originally bought my DMG from, I guess, knew I was pretty handy with fixing you know European machines and they had the Micron up for sale and said, you know, are you interested in buying it? So I was like, yeah, shit, yeah. I've been pestering you for years about it. It's just such a well thought out beautiful machine the finishes that come off it are just impeccable so i bought that and then just so happened that another person i was speaking to at the time i became friends with they their company was selling basically a nearly unused akuma it's a twin pallet uh three axis vertical and an akuma mf 46 va with all the bells and whistles, super nerves, 50 tool, tool changer, higher RPM spindle, yada, yada, yada. And I was like, wow, so I've got two high-end machines now and absolutely nowhere to put them in because they're both like 
10 to 12 ton machines each and <laughs> real estate isn't <laughs> real estate isn't really easy to come by for my shops here in brisbane everything's kind of so yeah i just got lucky at this place it was like three times the rental price that my previous space was so that was pretty scary taking that on yeah moved into here and did months and months of like the build-up you know moving everything in organizing everything getting the machines hooked up and then I was basically told the machines were working because I bought them sight unseen. They came from different parts of the country. Yeah, as you can probably tell if people have been following me, it's been just nightmare after nightmare of things breaking and fault finding and yeah it's been it's been a punish the micron came like they ended up selling the micron to me super cheap because it had an issue where when it moved to the front right hand corner of the table it would vibrate so the whole machine would shake and i was like that's that's weird so is it like a ball screw issue they obviously had their micron reseller come out and look at it and like yeah yeah it's a ball screw issue you know there's x amount of vibration in it. so they wanted like I was like 60 to 80 grand to replace a ball screw in it. So I took a really big risk <laughs> getting Ooh. that micron. I was like, either it's not the ball screw issue and it's something else or it's the ball screw and we'll look at that later. I'll just use like the top left-hand side of the table for now. So I sat there for a few weeks and it actually turned out to be a PLC issue. That's what I was going to say. It sounds like a servo tuning kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So that's exactly what it was. So I sat there for ages looking at it, checking forums, like diving into the PLC, teaching myself that sort of stuff. And it turns out when Micron had delivered that machine, the reseller had actually like messed up their PLC and changed a few settings. And they had basically removed all the servo tuning for the x-axis. Uh, sorry, for the y-axis. Oh so it wasn't actually the x-axis that was the issue. It was the y-axis when it came to that certain spot on the uh, the gantry. And yeah, I just had to basically adjust a few numbers, and the problem was completely solved. Well, I'm glad it was something relatively simple. I mean, it sounds yeah. like you had to learn a lot, but. So oh, servo say, tuning uh, is a giant thing. Yeah, I I cracked open a pretty good bottle of whiskey that night and I was like so stoked <laughs> with myself. I was like, you're a fucking genius. And everyone's like, no, you're not. I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> so tell me about your third machine too, because if you look, I mean, me looking back on your Instagram, it seems like you bought a lathe and then decided to stick it at the back of your shop and then very quickly had to hoist it over all of your yeah. machines. Yeah, so that lathe was a, a really nice machine. Eh? It was just a, a real simple two-axis lathe, and I actually got that included with the sale of the Akuma. Oh, okay, that's awesome. They were like, we're clearing. They were actually getting Kearns in at the time. They're a pretty big medical company here in Australia, but budget to them is there's no budget, just get what we need yeah so they had, you say kerns multiple that's uh yeah plural that's not a yeah, small budget. <laughs> yeah so they needed to clear the floor space and they're like buy the akuma and we'll throw the the lathe in for free i was like say no more and yeah the crane lift the the we had to get like a 25 ton crane like a frenner to basically lift it three meters in the air three and a half meters in the air and up and over the two machines through a little gap in between electrical cables it was pretty sketchy to get it out of the shop but yeah some pretty good riggers here in brizzy that i've been using for years i sold that and that basically paid for the akuma oh wow 
That's so, killer. That's like, yeah, it, it paid for the cost of the Akuma and the rigging and all that sort of stuff. So I basically got the Akuma for $0. Jeez, that's amazing. Very, so, very lucky, yeah. We've been kind of dancing around it, but our, our first listener question was from Design the Everything, and he asked, was it worth buying used machines, and would you 100%. buy used again? 110%. Okay, so speaking of that, let's go through the gamut of all the things you've had to repair on both because it like secondhand, I get so excited for you every time you post and you're like, I got this one. Like you had the yep. door on the micron, you had you yep. know, things on the Akuma. So let's go through those and the stories behind them. Yeah. Okay. So like I look at it this way of living well below your means, like in everything in my life, um, buy secondhand this, secondhand that, don't buy the latest, newest thing, don't get into debt try and run your shop below your monthly quota and put money away where you can. Obviously, every month that's not, you know, applicable. Some people have bigger budgets. Some people have, you know, different accuracy needs. I'm just making knives. So buying secondhand machines for me, as long as it makes, you know, nice knives and the service quality is good, I'm pretty happy. But yeah, I don't see the point in buying a brand new machine for the type of work I do and then having this monthly repayment and stress of like, oh, I need to make X amount just to cover that, then rent and then make a profit. So I'd much rather buy something cheap that needs fixing up, spend the time fixing it up. Even though I hate myself for it, I'm like, man, I'm never getting a secondhand machine again. Like, you're an idiot. Why would you do this like a fifth time? But there's, I don't know, there's a bit of like a lure to it of like, that accomplishment at the end of like, all right, this was pretty messed up. I fixed it. Now it's making really good parts. Totally. Well, and like you said, you're your own tech. Like you, you kind of have to be. And so the fact that you've yeah. accomplished all of that is amazing. Yeah. So for the Micron, gosh, we had so many issues. The Apart from that servo issue, we had a hydraulic power pack issue with the drawbar. So the drawbar for, you know, the tool tool release on the hsk 50 spindle is hydro hydraulically driven that was like toast and let's just say it's multiple figures for a new one out of uh switzerland Mm -hmm. so that wasn't happening so i was like i'm just gonna learn how to rebuild hydraulics and deep dived onto youtube like school of youtube and rebuilt it all new seals all new lines and Luckily, it just started working, and I was like, oh, wow. Well, that saved me a lot of money. Spent, you know, a few weeks fixing it and learning, but now I've got a skill. Now I can maintain that part and know, you know, I've repaired it to a, you know, a certain standard, and I'll know now if it's getting below that standard. We had stuff like the tool release button not working. That was, like, never working for the previous company that bought it new. I don't know what happened. They must have just gotten a dodgy machine or they just had dodgy stuff that broke everything because that was a pretty easy fix if i remember right wasn't it which was that sorry the tool release button yeah it was something so dumb like you know when you like buy a machine like oh yeah this is gonna work you just assume something as dumb as like a tool release button is gonna work Nah, it wasn't working it was like fully covered with coolant all up in the lines it was shorting the machine out and it just took me ages to figure it out because i wasn't really that good with testing for shorts and stuff like that i hadn't really done much of that before so my dad's a uh, 
uh, aircon refrigeration mechanics, done sparky work. He came and helped and he found it in like five minutes. I was like, yeah, well, I feel dumb. <laughs> so we just, yeah, 3D printed a, a part for it, you know, put a new button in, rewired it, sealed it. And now it works flawlessly. I was like, so there's little small things that stop the machine because it won't allow you to change tools if it thinks there's a tool in the spindle when there is no tool in the spindle. Does that make sense? Oh, like yeah. it'll come up with a code saying emptying spindle. So it wants to take that said tool in the spindle, put it into an empty pocket, then grab a new tool. Mm-hmm. There's no way to actually like tell it, hey, actually there's no tool in the spindle when there isn't one. So it was just stuck. It just wouldn't work. So until we fixed that button, that machine was dead in the water. Oh, goodness. Yeah, it's the weirdest thing. Yeah, I fixed that and now it's, it's running flawlessly. Like I've had like some of my parts checked and... A lot of like, there's about 47 measurements on the knife, like tapered thickness measurements that I use, like the geometry on the Gutos. Mm-hmm. The When I was making the Gutos on the Micron, we were holding around five plus or minus Microns on edge thickness. Wow. That's- yeah. So I had that, that checked and then I was pretty stoked. I was like, wow, that's a pretty accurate machine for like a non-climate uh, controlled shop. Right. Yeah, that's really impressive. Yeah, because the entire casting is one solid piece of mineral epoxy granite. Oh, interesting. Okay, I didn't realize they weren't cast iron machines. No, no, the whole like it's like a U. It's it's like a H frame almost. So the Mm -hmm. the Y axis moves along the top, and it's completely supported by the epoxy granite. And then the X moves left to right. Yeah, that's the table. So the the table only moves in in X. And then the spindle moves on Y. So it's all completely supported by the epoxy granite. There's no actual like cast iron in the main build frame, the mm-hmm. chassis. And the Akuma, same thing. It has the same exact design. It's at like bridge type mill sort of construction. So it's super rigid. And that's epoxy and cast iron. Okay. What year is that Akuma? Hang on, hang on a sec. My dog's going nuts. <laughs> puppy life the micron is a micron hsm 700 and it is 2007 okay and the akuma is 2004 okay yeah so they're not terribly old machines at all. no no not at all whereas the the tong tie beforehand was like brand new 2018 when i bought it in 2018 right right yep. so do you like i guess osp and heidenheim better than you liked fanic well very begrudgingly never buy a Fanuc ever again in my life. <laughs> that good, huh? They are like a Toyota. They're super reliable. Super easy to find people that know Fanuc, like say to run it and fix it and such. But oh my God, does that make you want to pull your hair out with its absolutely spastic memory size? Oh yeah. Yeah. No joke. Like 21st century, we're using like kilobytes you yeah, know, it's measured one, in meters of tape. <laughs> like, what? I think yeah. I had on a brand new machine like 512 kilobytes of memory. Mm-hmm. Like, what? Like, it's just, it's it's absurd. Like, you can't even plug, you plug a USB in, but you just can't run the program off the USB. You've got to copy the program from the USB via DNC to the main memory and like run it in like drip feed DNC mode and you've got, 
if you're prototyping, you've got no way to really stop that program, inspect, restart the program without just really messing around with it. Yeah, Fanuc and, without a data server or the data server option is like yep. really hard to run. Yeah, and they wanted like five something grand just to upgrade the memory. And then Fanuc were really difficult because it wasn't a robo drill. They wouldn't come out and do the work. I'd oh, have to get really? Tong Tai to do the work. Wow. And it was just, yeah, it was just like, wow, this is such a letdown. And that is honestly the reason why I sold the machine was purely because of the control. Makes sense. Like a lot of my work is just, you know, that consistent product refinement, prototyping, and you just can't beat hard and hind. It's such a powerful, easy to use, I guess, your mind isn't getting raped with stupid things like, Mem- like low memory like you are on, on Fennec. Hide and hide, you can just pause it. It'll stop. You can move the table around, move the spindle around, inspect your parts, close the door, press on, and it just picks up where it left off, starts starts all your auxiliary stuff, and just goes back to machining without any issues. OSP, that's been a pretty hard one to learn because it's got an OSP 100 in it, and it's a pretty older control, but it's like that model has all the bells and whistles. I think it's got like a two terabyte um, hard drive in it. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Same with the the Micron. I think the Micron's a one terabyte hard drive. So it's all like just data linked wirelessly from my computer. So you can just send files over and then it just stores it on, on the memory. Easy as, but that Akuma was an absolute nightmare to figure out how to access the, what they call TC. It's it's their form of like in-between hard drive where you've got to send your files through a uh, program on your computer. I use like FileZilla and you've then, yeah, got to send it that way to the Akuma. But the annoying thing is you then from the Akuma, you've then got to send it from TC to HD0. And it's just a lot of like double and triple handling. Whereas a Micron's one one program, TNC Cremo, and it goes straight to the, the hard drive on the Micron, you can run it straight from that. So it's a lot of little differences and that's not so bad for like your workflow if you're doing like large scale manufacturing where you just, one program and it runs forever. But if you're changing, constantly changing little things, prototyping every day, doing like 100 whatever edits, that gets pretty time consuming. Oh, I bet. Sitting there waiting for it to, to load, transfer copy across, start, stop. So that's probably my only real gripe with the Akuma, but I've heard the new Akumas are really good, OSP200s and 300s. I've got a few friends that have got OSP300s on their horizontals and they just won't go back. Oh, I bet, yeah. So uh, speaking of, or going back to the things that were wrong with them, you also had the tool change door on the Micron that went bad, oh, right? Yeah. That was Gosh, heartbreaking that, that, to watch. Yeah, that day, <laughs> that happened. And I said, oh, fuck it. And shut the machine down. I just sat on the floor with like a bottle of whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) Literally on the shop floor with a straight bottle of whiskey. And I've never done that in my life. And I just sat there drinking whiskey for a few hours, just like venting. (laughs) But you figured it out. Yeah, yeah. So I won't say how much they wanted for a new door out of Micron Direct, but it was around around eight eight to ten grand for a new door assembly. (laughs) Like we're just talking uh, pneumatic... RAM, you know, small pneumatic RAM, 
a piece of like 1.5 mil stainless sheet and two brackets. Oof. Yeah, they are a little proud of their stuff, that's for sure. Yeah, I put in like a $200 air ram and some laser cut stainless steel and we're all fixed. It took it a long time to um, get it right because there's there's only about three millimeters of clearance on the right-hand side of the Y-axis for it to go into the tool changer area. Mm-hmm. So it was constantly getting, it was constantly rubbing. So you've got to tune the stroke limit on the, the in and out on the pneumatic so the door opens enough so it clears but closes enough so that like coolant and chips aren't getting in the tool changer area. So that was a lot of like swearing stuck inside the machine, you know, covered in oil and chips and all that jazz for a few I guess weeks it was tuning that and it was going to be a really quick fix like looking back on it it's like two hours of work and it'd be fixed but we had like we bought a brand new pneumatic rod and it came bent like the actual shaft was bent like the piston oh no so we were like forever going like what's going on why is this door not fully closing in time and it turned out like the rod was ever so slightly bent like by the eye you really couldn't see it but it was bent enough that the friction was stopping the rod from fully compressing like back into itself and the door wouldn't fully open so we had to buy another pneumatic rod and wait for all that to come and yeah problem solved now it's been running perfect ever since awesome yeah and then what about the akuma i know there was something with one of the tool setters and then yeah so i had that pretty bad crash where Basically, I mean, it, it's got, like, I don't know why Akuma used it, but it's like a Metrol, pretty standard, everyday tool setter on it. Mm-hmm. You know, just a, yeah, a normal, like, Z-axis tool center for length. I don't know why in such an insanely expensive machine that they didn't opt for a Bloom laser like the Micron has. Right. Um, but, yeah, it decided to fail, and the, the spindle just went basically straight through it. Um, did it stick closed because I know that's been a big thing with the Metrols that they sell with brothers is that they've stuck closed on a lot of people well it was like it's freedom of movement was fine I think it literally just the sensor inside of it maybe you know may have stopped functioning or something I'm not sure I don't really look at it too much like it stopped working and then all of a sudden it started working again after it you know got squashed by the spindle so that took a while to like recalibrate everything because then I had to like teach myself how do I calibrate this machine in the right sequence? How do I calibrate the, you know, the Renishaw probe? And it's kind of like a flow-on effect and it just eats up your time because a lot of the cycles that you get from Akuma are machine-specific. There's not many of this exact machine here in Australia, the MF46VA. They're a bit of like a, I guess, a higher-end, more unique-style machine. So it's very hard to find information on them like, you know, forums and such. Not many people talk about it. So you can't really get the files you need to kind of calibrate everything. It was a bit hard with Akuma because they're so flat out with installs, getting people around to show you how, hey, how do I use this control and how do I recalibrate in the right steps? Just took forever. I just sit, sitting and waiting for people to the point where I just sat there like one night till like 4 a.m. and just figured it out. And now it works. So. That's crazy. And was that the only thing you've had to work on on the Akuma? No, I had to replace some of the oil pneumatic lines. So that, that gives, you know, like compressed oil shots to 
spindle bearings and stuff. Okay. That needed replacing the... What else needed replacing? I had to pull apart one of the drive units because the fan had broken in it and wasn't cooling the unit down. So I had to like fully pull that out, inspect it, figure out why it was overheating. And it was just a simple like case fan. And we had issues with the... Basically, it was having issues with the positional sensor, like the encoder for the servo. Because mm-hmm. it's all glass scales, much like the Micron. It doesn't have any limit switches. So when it was at full rapids, it would sometimes move past its Z-stroke on, say, if you program like Z, sorry, G00, Z999, whatever, to take it to full, its top position, it would go past that stroke limit and then error out, and it would just do it randomly. Uh, it'd run for two weeks fine in production, and then all of a sudden start throwing errors. And it took a long time to figure out that it was literally just the speed of the machine. It was moving so fast that it wasn't catching itself. I think it's just uh, maybe a faulty encoder. So I just changed the rapids down to like 70% and the issue went away. Oh, wow. So like easy fix. Yeah, (laughs) super easy Cheap fix. fix, Like I I kind of just like triage it. It's like, yeah, I could fix that and spend thousands of dollars getting new encoders and pulling the spindle apart and all that. But let's just turn the speed down and keep machining. Well, I'm really glad that that was such an easy fix then. It seems yes. like it's making some really nice knives now. Yeah, the, the the knives coming off now are just... Every knife is perfect. Like it's, it's how I envisioned the process would be. So it runs now non-stop. So it has two pallets as a pallet changer and there's eight knives per pallet. Op1 now used to be 34 hours for Op1. Mm-hmm. And I've slowly like refined that process down and I've gotten that process down for one down to 12 hours. Yeah, you were posting a day or two ago about that, that you yeah, like, so shaved I've, hours I've, off of a toolpath. I've re- refined it even more since then. So, yeah, so I went from like 34 hours down to like 20 hours and then from 20 hours down to 14 and then 14 down to 12. That's insane. For up one, yeah, for eight, eight knives. And it's all hard milling. So it's all 62 Rockwell stainless, three millimeters thick. And I take the edge down to 0.2 of a millimeter. Oh, that's super thin. So you're, you're dealing with resonance and chatter and warping and like what may work for somebody else, speeds and feeds wise, may not work for you because of your machine. So you're dealing with like resonance in the cutter and your machine rigidity and your, your tool holder rigidity. So some speeds and feeds that I use on the Micron doesn't necessarily carry over to the Akuma. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, 100%. Like, the Micron is just so much more rigid in its design and with that HSK50 spindle compared to your BT40 spindle. Right. Well, and you've got significantly more RPM on the... Yeah, so uh, I've got 36,000 on the Micron and only 15,000 on the Akuma. And I'm using, you know, small little ball cutters you need as much rpm as you you know you can get to have some sort of sfm totally so actually so speaking of your process two of the listener questions design the everything also asked advice about milling and fixturing bevels and how you sharpen knives in an efficient and repeatable way and split Mm -hmm. 141 asked 
how do you process blades after hard milling to a sellable blade? So let's kind of, as much as you're willing to share, let's go yep. soup to nuts. You know, what advice do you have on milling bevels and fixturing bevels and, you know, dealing with those resonances and then how to sharpen and make a sellable blade from there? Okay. So I guess it's like a bit of like machining bevels is a bit of an art form in the sense that you've got to be happy with what is coming off the machine. Some people are happy with, you know, a certain step over and a certain look and then they hand finish it. And they're happy with a certain amount of time that it takes to machine that bevel. I'm all about, I don't care if it takes three hours to machine a bevel. So long as I have to do less handwork and less time spent on that one knife. Like that was the whole reason I got into milling was to, sorry, into CNC, was to get away from as much repetitive hand finishing. So for your bevels, you want your bevel completely supported at all times and pull taut, if that makes sense. So the way I keep the bevels straight and not wanting to warp as much is by having what I call like a skin so I only machine down, leaving like 0.05 on the the edge, okay. and then that that is like it's like foil, um, it's thinner than foil around that edge, and that connects to the sacrificial piece of s- steel that I've got bolted down, and that keeps your whole bevel tight. The and then, so cut- under that, are you do you have a, a 3D machined contour for up to? Yeah, yep. Exactly, okay. yeah. So I've done that for years now and that was like kind of, I guess, a bit of the secret back in the day. I was like, oh, how are you machining up to? But yeah, it's you just have that negative or that plus. Depends right. how you look at it. So then um, you have to keep really tight tolerance otherwise you're going to create a gap. Yeah, there. like length is, length tolerance is like the most important thing for me for how my tool offsets. I would love to have the money to get like a Spironi or something where I could very accurately measure each tool because there's a lot of tool changes for machining hard knives. Uh, a lot of people machine them soft. Right. But I've done that in the past with machining soft blades, but it's just such a hassle with heat treating. You're dealing with warping and because it's so thin, like just breathing on it when it's hot is enough for it to like crinkle like a potato chip. <laughs> so what steel do you use for most of your uh, knives so like my everyday range of knives uh, is 14c28n it is made by sandvik in sweden it's an amazing stainless steel it's comparable with a lot of people use nitro v it's quite literally the same recipe okay i've got a butterfly knife that's that material so i had no idea it was very similar yeah, to nitro. it's like <laughs> we're basically the exact same material i'm pretty sure that's what nitro was based off it's been around for years but you know it's like steel fads come in and out you know there's a lot of like knife nerds out there in the edc world that really get into the metrology and um, metallurgical side of you know knife steels right and then my higher range of stainless steel for kitchen knives is rwl34 same steel that John Grimstone uses in his folding knives. It's a really clean, high, you know, sort of wear resistant, really fine carbide structured stainless steel. And that's my sort of higher end range uh, of stainless steel that I use. And then I, I dabble in like, you know, like the Damascus steel, Damascus 
which is made by the same company and uses the same base stainless alloy, RWL34. Right. And then we have our carbon steels, which I prefer. They get a lot sharper, hold their edges far longer. And I use a Japanese steel called a Vitoku 2. It's made by Takafu Steels in Japan. I've got a really good relationship with them personally. And yeah, so I use a lot of their stuff. And would love to, you know, expand into more exotic steels. It's just time and cost. It's, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I imagine that, you know, even if they're similar hardness, they still have require very individual speeds and feeds. Yeah. So, like, machining, say, Vitoku 2 at the same hardness as 14C28N, that Vitoku 2 is going to absolutely destroy your end mill so much faster because it's got far higher wear resistance, has, you know, more alloys in it like tungsten and vanadium, etc., that will just kill your tool faster than a low-alloy stainless like RWL34. Right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And, and actually, that was one thing I had meant to ask you about was if you, when you're cooking, prefer a carbon steel or stainless steel knife because I know I, I have a few Japanese chef's knives that I really love. They are, I believe they're stainless, but I've heard that the carbon steel is kind of the, the knife steel of choice for serious chefs or people using chef knives. Yeah, so I love carbon steel. It's far easier to sharpen, in my opinion. It just holds a, a much finer edge. So you can you can go down to a thinner edge thickness than usually you can on most stainless steels. Like there's plenty of like high carbon stainless steels out there that, that do the same. Like ABL gets insanely thin and insanely sharp it's almost as sharp as carbon steels like your you know your white twos blue twos your vitoku twos this probably means absolutely nothing to most people but i think we've got a fair bit of knife nerds who that follow us in the pod oh yeah yeah, yeah I've, had, also, I've had a few knife makers on and you know everybody they're all over it then but yeah i i love carbon steel in slicing knives stainless steel in multi-purpose sort of Kyoto chef knives like I, I've got a hand forged Yanagi bar which I forged years ago it's a 270 mil long single bevel slicer that I use for slicing up proteins like meat and fish and such it is the only knife that's ever really hurt me like three times now it's gotten me with like visits to the ER oh wow really yeah. are you then yeah it's yeah, so like it wasn't even sharp and then it butterflied my thumb open to the bone. Oh, jeez. So I've got a scar from like the inside of my palm that runs all the way along my thumb and it, it butterflied it straight to the bone in like half a second. I, it was standing upright, the handle was gluing and the breeze knocked it and I went to catch it. <gasps> oh, no. Yeah, rookie error. Like never try and catch a falling knife, but... Yeah, I did, and yeah, that, that hurt. That sucked, and the other one, it, it gouged like a thumb width and depth chunk of meat out of my uh, palm under my index finger, right on the bone there. It just scooped it like an ice cream scoop to the <laughs> bone, and they had to cauterize that. So I got lots of nerve damage in my hand there from that. There's a lot of knife injuries you have. If you, some days, you know, you're really tired, and Buffing wheels are the most dangerous thing for a knife maker, I think. They usually catch the edge and throw it into your face or into your stomach. Oh, man. 
yeah, it's a it's a pretty dangerous stuff with it. It comes to knife making in the, in the shop. You just got to be pretty onto it. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like buffing at two a.m. might not be the, the the best time to do it at. Neither neither is prototype machining. <laughs> that I can uh, attest to as well. <laughs> yeah, I've made some pretty pretty bad errors. Um, tired machining at night. Now I've got kind of a rule that I don't really prototype after seven p.m. I'll just run, you know manufacturing side like production right it runs nearly 24 7 and i just sort of tend to it but yeah i don't do any changes and such after zmbm if i've worked all day it's just yeah, yeah not, not worth yeah. putting a spindle through your table or such i completely agree well and like i i mean very often i'm working past then and, and having to prototype but i do yep. have a pretty firm rule with myself you know unspoken rule that like if i make a mistake no matter how big or how small past you know nine or ten it's like okay i just need to call it quits like because that's indicative that like the next mistake is just going to be tenfold worse even bigger yeah and that was pretty hard for me to learn like sometimes can be a bit stubborn with it it's like no no you're fine it's like no no you're you're actually tired you know it's not worth destroying machine over just go rest and then come back to it tomorrow. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's just, that's me trying to be an adult. <laughs> it, it's but, tough. No, cause we all think that we're, you know, impervious and, and yep. trying to put aside that kind of ego is it's not yeah, easy. Yeah. The, the ego is hard, especially when you've got a deadline. Oh yeah. You, you know, you think that the world is going to crumble around you, but it's like, you know what? You know that that customer might be mad at you or whatever the next day, but they're, they're gonna not be paying the bills. Yeah, they're well, not paying and, the and bills when you so much like more angry with you if you blow up your machine and you can't deliver anything. You know? Yeah, exactly. Like that's exactly the way I look at it. I used to be all about like, oh no, I'm gonna you know really let people down. I hate letting people down, but I'm gonna let them down further if I put a spindle through the table. Yeah. Oh yeah. So. Yeah. So another question from uh, Tom at Inspiration Metalworks. He asked, how do you come up with all these cool designs? They are freaking cool as heck. I don't know. I, I guess just I have a certain like design aesthetic that I like. I really like minimalism and like a clean look. You can kind of see that with the Gutos, with the, the way the handle's designed and the blade shape. There's a lot of Japanese influence, Japanese names. Like a Gyuto is, you know, Japanese for sort of a chef knife, that all-purpose sort of knife that you'd use. And then I put my own tw- sort of twist to it. And what I think looks good as, I guess, an artist. Like, at the end of the day, you're like, you're designing what you think looks good and you hope other people think it looks good. And so far, people seem to like it, which is good. So I, I love the just, pattern you have on most of your blades for your, your relief. Yeah. So in the, the hollow? Yeah. Yeah. So that's like actually for a purpose. That hollow is what we call an S grind. It's something you won't find on any commercial made knives. It's literally there to allow air to pass through the blade and stop suction. Right. So if you ever, if you ever try to cut like cut a white potato in oh, half. Oh, yeah. And you've and got then, both sides on both sides of your knife. Yeah. And it's stuck. Yeah. Like uh, that's just, yeah, it, it's, it's frustrating. And like if you're a chef or a line cook and such, Dealing with that all the time isn't really too fun for production. So you add that hollow to it and then it allows air to get through and nothing sticks. And then the the very edge, the main bevel, is also convex. So it has a reverse hollow. Oh, interesting. Does that make sense? So it's like two hollows? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I if understand you, if the S now. Yeah. yeah, so if you put like a ruler 
across your entire knife bevel, you would see that the ruler only touches the top part of your primary bevel and the lower half of your main flats or near your spine. So you, you when you cut, you really want as the least amount of friction or least amount of surface area touching the food. That's really cool. Um, how, how much in your design process, how much goes into balance as well? Because I know... 100%. Yeah, because yeah, chefs are super picky about the balance. Yeah, so well. every single knife you'll get on mine, it is balanced perfectly at the heel. So the heel is the rear part of the blade before mm-hmm. the handle. Some knives have a, like a ricasso, which is that bit of the heel that comes down and it's like blunt. It's behind the plunge line. I don't have a, a ricasso on mine. I sort of follow the Japanese line of the French have like ricassos and such and, and plunge grinds that come to the the lower half of your knife bevel and it gets in the way of sharpening and actually like touches the board. I remove that so that you can sharpen the entire bevel and nothing gets in the way and that is right, basically the balance point. So you can take that knife finished lay it horizontally across your finger and it'll balance perfectly there. So uh, how are you doing that? Is it just with fusion? Any... Okay, I was gonna say, do you are you using fusion to, to balance yep. it or well I have like a set size length that I know thickness wise I have like I guess my known dimensions from when I handmade knives that I'd always make knives to. And from that I know say x amount of blade length and blade width to x amount of length and width of the handle and it's quite easy just to find say the pendulum sort of the zero point where it'll just balance naturally and you can just adjust that in fusion and to where you want it some people like blade heavy knives some people like handle heavy knives i try to be somewhere in the middle you sell more knives that way and it makes the knife feel weightless does right. that make sense oh yeah it's so so balanced and it's easier on your wrist like if you've got to swing a knife for 10 12 hours a day as like a line chef you want that knife to be balanced perfectly so that you have that knife as like an extension of your arm totally oh yeah yeah so i studied like quite a bit about rsi and you know re- which is like repetitive strain injury on people in different jobs doing you know repetitive tasks i did a bit of a paper on it while studying uni on handle design and balance and stuff because it pertained to me with my rsi and my wrist i wanted a knife that was like balanced and light that when i cook i don't feel like oh gosh this knife's heavy or wow my wrist is hurting you know if that makes any sense to you oh totally no i i I completely agree with you you want it to be you don't want to think about the knife. You want to think about the task at hand. So yeah, I totally it's all about the 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 end product. Like for me, it's like I cook because it's like a passion for me. Like you know, it's, it's something I love to do. And the way I look at it is, if the product works that well for you, that you forget that that used to be a problem for you, then you know that product is perfect for you. Does, does that make sense? Oh, totally. Yeah. So, so, are your knives also designed? Because I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I was under the impression that most Japanese knife styles are made for push cutting instead of like rock chopping. Yep. Is that yeah. 
kind of how your blades are? Well, they are in a way, but I've also got it so that it you can do both. There's not much of a point in production making a knife that only fits one demographic of people. Totally. I mean, there isn't a million people out there buying a million knives from me every year for one style of knife and then another, say, buying the other style of knife. It's better to incorporate both styles if you can and then everybody's happy. So, yeah, you can push cut and pull cut and rock chop and whatever you want with my knives. So, there's uh, a flat spot for about a quarter of the length of the blade from the heel forward. So you can push cut with that and then it slowly curves more and has more belly and that allows you to do finer, faster rock chopping and faster processing of like your herbs and onions and whatever. And then a really thin tapered tip which allows you to, to do a lot of your like finer cutting like julienne and bronwire and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. That's awesome. That's really a smart way to do it because... I know that that's, you know, in looking at buying another chef's knife or something, that's always yep. something to consider. So it's nice that yours kind of can do it all. Yeah, it can do it all. And like they come with lifetime warranty and lifetime free sharpening. Wow. Like you look at how many other products in the world give you, I guess, that kind of service. Like I want these knives to be in your family for the rest of your, your life and hand them down to your kids. That's great. That's, that's such a uh, wonderful and refreshing way to look at products. You know, I, yeah. I think most of the people who come on the podcast are like that, but in general, that is not the way the world works. No, like especially when you look at like our tech industry, there's just so much tech waste. Everything's designed these days to last two years and then fail. Yeah. Because that's how they, you know, obviously they're about making money. Great for business, not so great for the end user and the environment. Yeah, they, ain't that the truth? Yeah. So another question from DFM Toolworks. He said, how do you manage steel chips and having the pups in the shop? Because you've got your dogs all over your Instagram. And so I'm yeah. sure they're there all the time. How do you deal with uh, safety for them? The shop supervisors, they're pretty good. <laughs> like I keep a pretty clean shop. Like like there's no chips on the ground like ever. And I, I wouldn't even call the chips that I make chips. They're more like splinters. Because <laughs> it's such a hard material, I'm taking such fine cuts that it produces a sharp little tiny splinter. And the only time I really have to worry about chip management is making handles or machining aluminum fixtures. And now both machines have chip conveyors. Oh, fantastic. So the Micron came without a chip conveyor and that was an absolute nightmare, having to like scrape out chips because it overflow and then coolant would go everywhere and yada yada so we managed to convert a akuma i think it's akuma from my friend's shop chip convert. yeah chris yep from ignite digi yeah he's yeah an awesome guy i've known him for a few years now and he's always keen to help especially with the akuma side he's a bit of a akuma fan he's got two really nice akuma horizontals now and a akuma vertical and like when I met him, he was like in the same situation as me, like a little tiny mill in our garage at home. Yeah, I was just seeing. I think he posted a throwback recently yep. where it showed the, you know, the two mills that he had in his garage, and now yep. not even one of his horizontals would fit there. So yeah, it's it's pretty crazy, and it's been pretty fast. Like 
super happy for those guys. They're, they're absolutely crushing it in the um, camera industry and you couldn't really ask for a better machine for the work he does in high production. Yeah, it seems like they're absolutely killing it and you know keeping those things run running 24-7 pretty much. Yeah, they're, they're not a cheap machine. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, well over not. half a million dollars each. So, so does you, because I mean... I, I'm imagining almost like a slurry of chips coming off your knives. Does the yep. chip conveyor actually carry that out? Yeah, if it gets big enough, actually, it does, weirdly. But I don't really let it get to that stage. Like, I've got a Freddy, which is kind of like the latest cool thing to have in your shop. And it's by far probably the best thing I've ever put in the shop. The guys behind Freddy are an awesome, awesome company. And the guy that owns it is... You know, it's, it's like a family-run business, I'm pretty sure, but in England. And that thing filters down to like five microns or less. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, and I saw you put it to good use recently. Actually, oh, we yeah. got a question from Alistair Phillips Folders, and he asked, how yeah. do you manage to have so many cooling accidents? Try having like two machines with like a couple of hundred liters of coolant in each with high-pressure coolant. It's pretty easy for things to go wrong. Or you're tired and you're filling up the machines and you take a phone call and forget you're filling up the machines of water. That's what happened to me the other day. Yeah, it's crazy too because that was, I think I commented on yours that that was like the second or third coolant accident like that that I'd seen all week. Like I had one machine overflow at work. I think one of uh, the Johns on their podcast had mentioned that somebody had overflowed their shop or like their, their machine and then you had yours and I was like, man, it's just like bad coolant juju this week. If I could get rid of coolant out of my life, I would. <laughs> I absolutely hate it. I love the look of the Daytron's like MQL alcohol misting unit. Oh, I know. To me, that is like, that's optimal. I'm pretty sure it may work for my application now that I'm doing a lot more dry machining, but I'm not sure how it would go with like slotting in hardened stainless. Yeah, I feel like that might be a little bit of a fire I'm not hazard. sure if that's like, you know, really pushing it cooling cooling wise because i haven't found a way to slot 62 rockwell stainless dry so where are you slotting on on those when you're yeah when i'm cutting them out okay that makes sense so um it gets cut out clean off the machine the knives come off the machine and they can basically cut that's amazing yeah the, the the edge is incredibly thin you can obviously take it down thinner and you do that by hand. But so guess, actually, that goes yeah, back yeah. to Split's question, which was, you know, what what processing do you do once the blades come off? Like, you know, how, uh, what okay, kind so of finishing are you doing all that? Yeah, so they get taken off the machine. They get inspected for any defaults, you know, like chip gouging, you know, edge thickness. I measured that with a jig that I 3D printed, like 3D resin printed. Mm-hmm. And that's the only thing I've been able to use that, can have the taper that I want of my bevels because it's really hard to like put a say a um, mic on the very edge and get the exact spot that you want to measure the thickness totally. and I don't have any like high-end metrology tools like all these other guys that you know all these really nice shops have so I just basically designed a resin 3d printed like almost like go no go gauge and if i can pull the knife through that geometry it's like a v like it looks like a v right it's like a block with a v in it and that v is 
the exact like taper of the the knife's bevel and if i can pull that knife through there i know i'm within you know a certain tolerance and it's where i want it to be so we do that it's passed all its checks we then mic the sorry not mic up use calipers and just measure the taper on the handle the the tang to make sure you know it is within the right width so that it'll fit the handles. It comes to a point now where it's so reliable that we haven't had an issue in months now that it's not at the right thickness. We then hand deburr it on the finishing wheel. So we use like a Scotch-Brite wheels made by 3M and just basically deburr the entire knife all the way around, get rid of any sharp burrs. It then gets sandblasted. It then gets my frost finishing and then gets tumbled in ceramic media. After that, it will then get its handle glued on. It's a bit of a lengthy process because hidden tang handles, it's a two-piece. It gets press fit on, glued, then needs hand sanding the join, like the seam, mm -hmm. then polished. And then once that's all done, final inspection, happy with the handle, everything's straight, edges straight. We then hand sharpen, and the hand sharpening is done on two machines. They're called a Tormac. It's the T8 version, the industrial sort of high-end version. That's and like Tormac, the really slow, giant wheel. wheel. Yep. Yeah. So that's Swedish-made. For some reason, I have a lot of Swedish-made stuff in the shop and <laughs> European stuff. I guess they just make really good stuff. But the Tormac's awesome. Like We use a, a diamond wheel on that, and so one machine will have a coarse grit, to cut in our bevel. So like we have a primary bevel which gets machined on the, the machine, leaving 0.2. And then we put in a micro bevel, which is like a, a 20 degree bevel on the edge. And that is what makes it sharp. And then we will go from the coarse to the super fine, which is about 6,000 grit. And that's a Japanese water wheel and then it gets finished on leather. That sharpening process takes about five minutes. Yeah, so by hand, you'd be there for a while, but because it's powered and it's a tall mic, it just makes life so easy, and it makes no noise. It's like the quietest piece of machinery in the shop. It's quite nice to sit down and sharpen because it's like a bit of zen. Yeah, and then we test the sharpness, make sure you know it can slice newspaper cleanly. Newspaper is a lot uh, better for testing sharpness than your normal sort of like copier white paper. Because newspaper is a lot thinner and has irregular irregularities in it. So if you've got a little bit of a burr on the edge, which is like, like that wiry edge, as you slowly slice through newspaper, it'll catch on a burr or any blunt spot you've got on the knife and you can actually feel it. So then you go back, fix it up, cut again. And yeah, once that's done, it's ready to box up. Wow. So before we get to our last two questions, you briefly mentioned it, but I want to deep dive into yep. your 3D printers because you also use them for sheaths. You use yep. them for all kinds of stuff. What do you have? You just got a, a new big one and it looked like a frozen 8K, but I wasn't quite sure. Yeah. So um, I've got, I've actually got the frozen 8K coming. Okay. I've got the frozen transform 4K. I've got two of those that I got super cheap and rebuilt oh awesome um, they're like three and a half four grand to buy brand new at the moment I bought them for like $1,500 on the 
locally and spent like 500 bucks on two mono screens and then upgraded it to mono screens and now it's amazing yeah so the mono screens are like monochromatic lcds they block a lot more light and allow more light through that i mean that's how a resonant 3d printer works it it's just literally like an ipad screen it blocks the light where you don't want it to cure and then allows light to cure the resin where you want the part and just builds up in layers the layer size that you're usually doing on a resin printer if you want like high detail is like you know 15 microns so what do you use for your sheaths are you using 50 or 15 microns i know for the sheaths i'm using 50 okay but even then think what's 50 microns like that's like a human hair thickness on average it's oh yeah yeah insane fidelity yeah, you know, compared to your FDM, which is you know your, your typical prusas and stuff that lay down filament, you're in that 200 to 400, 500 sort of plus range. Yeah, um, and they really don't have the same strength. People think like resin printers are like just for like making models and like dinky toys and stuff. There are so many engineering resins out there that completely wipe the floor with FDM printed parts. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, strength and I've mentioned and it. I've mentioned on the show before, but we've got a form two at my day job that I use yep. for CMM fixtures and assembly fixtures, and like I'd much rather use that than a yep. FDM printer. Hundred percent FDM. Like I spent so long pissing around with FDM, like trying to make my sheaths low cost. Like I could machine the sheaths, but then they're never going to be the same price as what I want them to be. Because if I've got to machine two parts, flip them twice, make sure they line up, glue them, sand them, they're never going to be the same price as like a resin sheath that I can print. They come off, they have minimal hand finishing, and they go on the knife. Like, so yeah, really gone to resin 3D printing, and it's been a game changer because I could print 10 of the same item in the same time it takes to print one. Whereas FDM yeah. is all about time per layer built up on one part resin just can do the entire build plate at the same time yeah that's pretty Um, amazing so are you using chi2 box as your slice i go between chi2 box and lychee slicer pro i far prefer lychee slicer okay it's it's pretty kind of new slicer Um, yeah yeah, it's very similar to chi2 but has quite a few extra features and their pro versions yeah really good but yeah in saying that i've then got a any cubic what is it uh mono x that was my first 3d 3d resin printer and that's been pretty good but the build quality is you know that typical sort of low-end chinese build it works but not always and it's just nowhere near the frozen transform build like the frozen transform build is like dual like mgen 15 linear rails with a proper ball screw the any cubics like this dinky tiny little eight mil lead screw that wobbles and has so many like slipping issues and yeah it's a, it's a bit of an nightmare but you can get really good parts off it you just got to constantly like piss around with it and tune it and then coming is the new frozen sonic mega 8k so it has an 8k monochromatic screen and like 
390 mil build play it's huge yeah massive massive monster and the whole idea of that is just like apart from the knives i do take on like government work so i do a lot of work for the police for the ambulance service and the fisheries which is like your fish wildlife and game service oh really yeah so i do all that work just like on the side outside of knives to like stimulate my brain quite like the problem solving and figuring stuff out for people compared to like consistent you know manufacturing gets a little bit boring doing the same thing over and over totally yeah yeah so that's like i've got that whale knife that i designed for queensland fisheries and for SeaWorld, and it's like a scissor that is two single bevel knives that are bolted together and uh, welded to a long threaded rod that goes onto a carbon fiber rod and allows like the rescuer to lean down safely next to like a big humpback whale and cut shark nets off it. Oh, that's super cool. So yeah, it's like a whale rescue tool, I call it. I saw quite a few of that to SeaWorld and to fisheries and they use it purely for saving whales and dolphins and turtles and stuff from shark nets here on, in, on the Gold Coast. That must be pretty gratifying. Yeah, it's pretty funny because, like, I'm not a greenie and my sister is and I very much like to rub it in that I save more whales per year than she ever has or ever will. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit of a sore spot for her. (laughs) Yeah, she studied, like, marine biology and all that. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. But, yeah, it's worthwhile cause and it's a pretty fun sort of project and police, I do a lot of random sort of secret government parts and all that stuff for them and ambos are making like these high-end trauma shears for them i mean i guess it's still blade related but it's a bit different to the knives so yeah keep it interesting that's really cool though that you get to use kind of what you learned on your knives but make something for your government that's really really interesting yeah it's different like uh, i guess like machining hardened stainless steel in large volume in aesthetically and also like accurately is not something a lot of people do in the industry like obviously there is definitely people that are doing it in much higher sort of hardnesses like astalloys and manels and all those sort of steels for rocket engines and such but generally like i've spoken to quite a few machinists and like this is not something they do much of so I guess no, you, you, you do get a bit of like a, a niche experience to bring to the table for some projects, I think. Super cool. I'm, I'm really pumped to hear that. That like that sounds like such a really, well, like I said, a really gratifying part of your company, you know, that yep. you not only get to make all these chef's knives that go along with your hobby and your passion, but also get to make things that are just slightly out of the realm. Yeah, and that's kind of where things are heading hopefully next year is a Willimon. Oh, really? Yeah, so a 508 Willimon that I'm currently looking at in talks with. But yeah, I guess more on that next year. But Is it another used machine? Yeah, it's a used machine, but in meant to be good standing order, but... We shall see. Robot, it's got robot loading and it's HSK uh, 63 spindle. Oh, wow. It's John had the smaller one, the 400 series. Yeah, the 408 with the yeah. HSK 40. Yeah, this is like the 518 or something. 
Okay. It's the, it's the next one up. Big swing on it. It's like a, it's like a meter swing on it. Wow. Between centers. Yeah, they're pretty amazing machine, hey? They are so lust-worthy. They are they, yeah, really, they really, really are. Cool. So the idea of that is just to take on a little bit more sort of engineering sort of style work to keep my brain sort of engaged, multi-axis sort of stuff. And there's a few sort of products that I want to make on that to kind of bring to the market as well that are a little bit outside of knives. Cause Very I cool. also, also make like broadheads. I'm not sure if you, you know about that, but like, you know, like For hunting. Arrows? Yeah, for arrows. So, like, I'm a big bow hunter. Oh, cool. And my dad and me have got a small little business called Ridgeback Broadheads. And we're trying to bring to market a four-blade, solid, CNC-machined broadhead. And we are, like, we've got prototypes done and working really well. But it's been a pretty, like, complex thing to do because, like, you go through machining it you go through heat treating it and you go through all those issues and then you've also then got to sharpen it. So I'm looking at different options between like CNC grinding machines to building a robot arm that will like sharpen in these heads. There's just, yeah, the sky's the limit. At this point, I'm probably like thinking maybe the Willamon will take over that because it can just make the entire part and then hard grind the edge all in one, one and done. Ooh. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. So we'll see how it goes. It's far away from, from here. It's a next year thing. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely have to check back in. Maybe if you get that, you can come back on and we'll chat some more. Yeah. It's kind of like the Willamon is not many people know of them, but when you see them, you're just like, holy moly, this thing is so capable. You know, like eight, nine, 11 axes machine. Right. Is, yeah. Well, in that flip up vice or, you know, yeah. tail stock, like that whole yeah. thing is so it's, cool. So the one I'm looking at has twin spindles. Oh, cool. It has okay. a full five-axis milling head. It has the flip-up uh, pneumatically controlled vice. Then has a flip-up third sub-spindle. Really? Yeah. Not sure what you'd use that for, but I guess for getting... I don't know, but it's there. <laughs> and then has a gripper of sorts that allows you to flip the part. Right. And a robot arm for loading, unloading. Oh, that'll be epic. Yeah. Who knows? We'll see how we go. Yeah. So it, yeah. back to questions. Jody, mayor of Little, Little River, asked, how many knives have you sold since Australia went into lockdown? A lot. <laughs> So, have you seen sales go up because everybody's home cooking? 100%, yeah. Everyone's like a stay-at-home chef now. Right. Everyone's like, I thought it was going to absolutely kill me. I was like, that's my business gone. Like, I just moved into this shop. Now, the roan has happened and we're screwed. But then, like, everyone wanted to to support the little guy and I was just so grateful and thankful um, for it. And there was a huge amount of orders, so many orders that I just couldn't keep up with it and had issues with getting supply. Like we just could not get blades stock in the right thickness, sizes and tolerances that I need for machining for ages out of Europe. So all my steel comes in at like half a ton at a time and I get it laser cut. It gets blanched ground, heat treated and then double disc ground afterwards and then packaged and sent over to me. Half a ton of time. So there's a lot of money sort of just floating out there, Do waiting nothing. like six six to eight months for it yeah. to arrive. Wow. Um, and we 
we had a lot of steel and local manufacturers decided to just blatantly destroy it all with their uh, laser cutter. No. Yeah, oh, no. burnt thousands of dollars of steel and still wanted me to pay the pay the check at the end of the day. That was awesome. They just burnt it. They didn't have any shielding gas running while using a laser cutter. Oh, my goodness. It looked like it had been cut with a really bad plasma torch. Right. Oh, I bet. Uh, yeah, stainless, you know, work hardens. And, yeah, it was just this disgusting slag all the way along. Knives wouldn't sit flat. It just... Yeah, it took me a long time to fix up and change. And most people would have just like sent it back and gone, This is, you know, this is messed up. What are you doing? Give me your money back or re- replace it. But with the blade steels, it's hard because a lot of the local manufacturers have no idea what blade steel is to them. They're just used to cutting 416 and 304 and all that sort of stuff. They're like, Oh, it's just stainless. It's like, No, but it's blade stainless and it's far more expensive and not as easy to replace in large volume. Right. Yeah, I, I imagine if you're already waiting for it to come over from Europe, you know, it's not something you can just say, oh, replace it. And it's like, well, I've got to make knives for the rest of the year kind of thing. Yeah, and then you're just left now, you know, with no stock and you can't make blade, you can't make any knives, and you've got customers waiting. And, yeah, it's been it's been a lot mentally to take on, especially by yourself. So, But we're here now. We're on the tail end of things, and... We're almost done, and I very much looking forward to having my first holiday in two years. Yes, well deserved for sure. <laughs> yeah. So his other question was, "Do you secretly love New Zealand?" Yes, I do. New Zealand is one of the most beautiful places in the world, hands down. Especially South Island. You go to New Zealand, you probably want to live there. <laughs> Apart from the job opportunities, they um. The pay kind of sucks compared to a lot of the other places in the world, just with their their dollar and how expensive the cost of living is over there compared to Australia. But it's just breathtaking. South Island or a road trip, if you come from, say, America or Europe or something, I can only probably say that Switzerland and where, like, Marv is up in, you know, the Swiss-German Alps mm-hmm. is probably the only place that's nicer <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, yeah my my wife is in love with new zealand and we definitely need to make it out there at some 100 point. million percent it is so worth it you do like a road trip from say queenstown which is like your typical tourist hotspot it's beautiful too like you see the remarkables which is like the, the big mountain ranges there they call the remarkables <laughs> you do a road trip all the way down the south island like you can go from one end of the country to the other end of the country horizontally, like laterally, in like a day. Oh, wow. Not many countries in the world you can go from one end to the other in a day. Um, no, but vertically, it, it takes you a long a long time because in Australia, we kind of joke that New Zealand is like the skid mark of Australia. It, <laughs> it like broke off from Australia and it's like the the red-headed child. So, yeah, some, it's a good lighthearted rivalry, especially when it comes I, to the football. Yeah, I would imagine that's why he was was asking the question. Yeah. Funnily enough, my ex-partner's family is from the exact same little tiny town that the uh, mayor of Little River is from. Really? Yeah, Little River is like just near Christchurch, a little small like farming agriculture area, and it's beautiful. How interesting. Small Small world. world. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the last question 
from Kiwi Machinist might take us into shop news and new things, but that was how long before the petite petties are available. Oh, yeah. I was actually just having this conversation with them last night at like 2, 3 a.m. They're coming. So I'm almost finished with all the Gutos now. We've machined like 100 150 plus so far, and the petties start in two weeks' time. Awesome. There should be a, a good good product, a little bit cheaper and a lot more like female customers like them because they're, they're smaller and more petite and they're, I guess, less scary to look at and hold and less like unwieldy. It just looks like a nice multifunction knife. Yeah, it is. It's, it's really good for like camping and traveling and, and all that. It's quite easy to take with you in your backpack on a hike or whatever you're wanting to do, camping and such. And those are a flat grind? No, no, they're, they're the same thing. They've got the same sort of design as the Gutos. They've got the S-grind function and all oh, the really? same, yeah, same bells and whistles. Oh, Something cool. you don't really see on petties for sure, but it makes a big difference because a lot of the a lot of my customers actually is the uh, private chef world within the yacht industry. Oh, interesting. Okay, um, so we're talking like billionaire mega yachts, right? Not not yachts with sails, but yachts with like you know multiple boats and lots of rich people on board. Um, yeah, with many commas in their price tag. I gotcha. Yeah, prices to them don't really mean anything. So they're my usual customers because they order in bulk and they want to impress their friends and they want something that their friends can't have in a world where they're so used to being able to buy something at their you know on a whim. They want something that their friends can't as easily get. It's a bit of like you know a dick measuring contest, right? Um, so is that where the steak knives came from? No, actually, the steak knives is for a new restaurant in Perth that's opening up, and they ordered a hundred of them. Oh wow! And yeah, I'm currently making them and prototyping them. The serrations have been a challenge. They look like literally vicious. Oh yeah, that that first like that first um one that I did, I cut through a lamb shin bone with it. Jeez. Like sawed right through a lamb bone. It's it was yeah, it's pretty nuts. It was like a bit too gnarly. So I've like sort of refined it back a bit and just machined that last night. So I've I've actually been machining since eleven PM last night. And then jumped on the podcast. Well, I, I really appreciate the <laughs> yeah. the time then. I know yeah. we were we talked, you know, briefly in DMs about crazy hours and burning the candle at all ends and how that can be kind of rough. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. My sort of trick is micro sleeping. Okay. Uh, it's kind of how I, I machine micro sleep 15 minutes. I kind of learned that in the army and lets you burn the candle. I'm very lucky because obviously I don't have a wife and kids and stuff that I guess a lot of other people have, especially in the, the small machinist community. I see everyone seems to be like hitched. I don't think they get to do the sort of hours and get ahead that I can and I'm very lucky that I can at the moment and hopefully don't have to in the future sometime soon yeah well I mean all the automation you're putting into place really seems to give you some of that time back thankfully yeah and and that's like kind of how I've always looked at it is like you've got to invest in automation in some form to buy your time back otherwise you become just a slave to the the machine 
like loading it, unloading it. Now all my machines will have chip conveyors. You'll have you know proper accurate tool measurement and ways to load it offline. So that Akuma allows me to load knives and unload knives while the other pallet's machining. So in theory, it shouldn't have to stop. It just keeps machining, much like a horizontal. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, that anything else new, shop news in the, the works? I mean, you talked about a possible Willamette in the future here, and yep. you're working on these steak knives. Anything else coming out soon that you want to plug? The big tomahawk. You may oh. have seen photos of, maybe not. I, tr- I, tr- I try tend not to post like my military and hunting sort of stuff to 50-50 knives because obviously like I guess there's vegetarians and animal groups and all that that don't like that sort of stuff. So I post to my Nyadi Blades Instagram page every now and again and I'm making a one-piece fighting axe for the military and for I guess civilians and it's pretty gnarly looking that's coming in january oh cool well i will definitely have to find a picture of that yeah so we're making it for a, in partnership with my friend's company called pathfinders outdoors he's ex-army like me and we all kind of just i guess all us ex-army guys just kind of look after each other in business and support each other as it should be totally yeah well, cool. That takes me to the last question I ask every guest, which yep. is, what did you research this week? It can be anything, but you know, what have you been deep diving into? The six-axis robot arm that I'm about to build. So there's plans for it online. You can buy plans for it and such, and I just want to make a few changes. But my idea is to replace the need to hand sharpen knives. Oh, okay. Add volume. Is this the Anon robot? Or uh, which one, sorry? The AR3? Yeah, that's exactly it. That's the one I'm oh. looking at building, yep. Okay, yeah. Yep. I, I've AR3. done quite a look into it. Yeah. I've looked quite into it. It's like, costed it out. I'm like, oh, is it easier just to buy the parts, machined? Should I machine them myself? Yada, yada. Because with shipping from the States to Australia, we get absolutely raped on price. And right. And import tax and... Yeah, our, you know, obviously a dollar is not as high, but yeah, looking at that. I would imagine that, the steppers and stuff you can get from China pretty easily and cheaply. Yeah, but I'd want to kind of put, I think, like uh, clear path servers or something like that in it. So there's more sort of, I guess, positional feedback, missteps and stuff. But yeah, the idea is that it would then sharpen knives in higher volumes, like say overnight. You'd set up a rack of knives and it would select the knives and sort of sharpen them on the water wheel. The water wheel is just such a low-cost, low-risk form of sharpening. You never have to worry about the edges burning. You don't have to worry about, like, say, belts or whatever, catching, breaking, wearing. The stone just continually, you know, slowly, slowly wears down. And, yeah, set up X amount of knives and just let it sharpen overnight. That's kind of the 2022 goal. That's awesome. Yeah, I've looked quite a bit into the AR3 just because it looked like a fun project. Yep. And uh, yeah, I, I I feel like if I do build one eventually, I'll probably buy the hardware kit. Yep. And, but the aluminum parts, you know, they seem fairly easy, so I'll probably make them just for yep. the fun of it. Yeah, it's just that like uh, time versus cost. You know, it's always cheaper to make your own parts in theory, but I'm slowly learning that. 
actually like leave the machines to make money and just buy the parts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's assembly. the the entrepreneur's struggle. I feel like for everybody in this yep. business is like, but I want to make everything, and it's like exactly. Yeah. But yeah. Should you like exactly? <laughs> yeah. I think John, like John Grimsmore, I was speaking to him. He suffers from the same thing. You know, wants to make everything. You know, tweak everything. Have his hands on on everything, but then doesn't have the time of the day, and then he's just like, oh man, I should have just bought the thing. And yeah. Focused on making knives. I I would seriously question a machinist resolve if they didn't at least struggle with that behind the scenes, you know. Yep. I'd be like, who are you actually? Like Yeah. And the hardest thing is also like you've got the all the tools, all the know how to make those simple, you know, plate parts. But then it's like it's a bit of like what's the quality like coming from this place? It's like, could I do better? Is it really actually worth my time to do better? Or does it just work how it's meant to work anyway? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and then the last thing is building a sort of high-speed gantry router. For before. handle materials? Yeah, purely handle materials. Because at the moment, I'm machining the handles in the Micron, and it does obviously like an amazing job, but it just seems dumb to be using a Micron to machine handles. Right. <laughs> yeah, like, a, l- a little bit of an overkill. That. Yeah, like insane overkill for machining corian and uh, aluminum so the idea is to probably build my own because i kind of want it nice and fast and high acceleration and probably using some sort of misting coolant system um looking at like a buying a epoxy granite base from say china or something and then building the rest myself very much like a a sort of a a datron m8 style Mm -hmm. yep maybe a little bit smaller but yeah, I would love to buy a Daytron, but holy moly, the prices on those are just crazy. Yeah, they, they are like big, full industrial CNC prices. It, I, I, I don't know what the price works out to there, but like a Neo is more or less the same as what I you know paid for my Speedio. Yeah, wow. So it's it's, it's like, not say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, just, I guess if I like had this very specific work for it, you know, yeah. I had Eddie Kramer on, and like his workflow works best on a Daytron, and so I totally understand that business case. But like for yep. me, there's no way I could run my business on a, a Neo. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You need that sort of flexibility between smaller and larger parts and part height. Yeah, yeah, precisely. It would be uh, pretty nice to run those machines. The, I love the control design. I feel Same. like they could teach a lot of machine <laughs> machine builders, <laughs> you know, how to make a control that's like user friendly. Oh yeah, I mean, like, being able to draw where you want probing and insane things like, like that. How is that not a thing? Yeah, it, why Hermley is so not coming with that sort of stuff, you know, and vision <laughs> systems and you know, I mean, yeah. like it just seems like such a that makes so much sense. Why is this not a, a typical thing? But yeah, I know. I guess it's very much unique to Daytron. Yeah, I, I think we'll get there. I mean, I think as younger and younger people get into machining, they'll be forced to kind of reinvent themselves like that. But yeah, it is frustrating, you know, watching all these Neo people or Daytron people just like have such ease of use and be able to oh, you know, flick a screen and move around their enclosure. And I totally see that. Like in a pr- uh, prototype environment, like say you're, you know, one man prototyping you know, machine shop doing sort of high accuracy, small parts, that Neo is just insane. 
So yeah. good for like quick fixture, change outs, part, you know, probing. You don't need to, I, I guess like probing in the Akuma with the OMP60 Renshaw probe. It's like, I can't just like call that probe up and probe via Fusion. I've got to buy all this extra software and it's real dinky and it's slow and like it's easy just to like jog it over and like get it to run the probing cycle but it's nothing like the, the Neo where you just get to draw on it and it just probes it and it's done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely see why there's a lot of labs that buy them, you know, a lot of yep. engineering labs because it just makes sense. Like, you know. Yeah. No one has you, to be a machinist to be able to use it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and like you had mentioned earlier in the podcast, like being able to pull a part out and it's not only not dripping in oil, but it's clean. Like yep. that's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Like looking after coolant is a full-time job in my opinion. Yeah. Like we filter the coolant in both machines of the Freddy every week. Some weeks we're like, we get real slack and we should, and we don't. And then we pay for it like the following week. Cause those fine chips really build up and block filters. But yeah, you've got to like constantly maintain it. And here in the heat of Australia, like we have coolant evaporate so fast, like probably just, just like Texas and stuff, sort of temps. Like, it's like 40 plus degrees here in summer in Australia. Celsius, like right. sh- she's yeah. hot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so yeah. you're, I mean, you're filling I'm up right at least once a day. And, you know, it's like it gets really expensive maintaining coolant in the, the shop and there's no like perfect system for it. I mean, I saw John built a little sort of like a, a refill, refilling sort of gizmo that he printed and designed, and that's pretty pretty geeky and cool. But there's nothing really off the shelf that I found that is affordable for maintaining a coolant and keeping it clean and filtered and, you know, like that one-stop shop. Right. Yeah, I mean, the only affordable is really the key word there because I found two systems so far that do it for you. But the last time I checked, it, I think it was a Swiss company, the one that I looked at. Man, I want to say it was 18 or 20 grand a machine. Yeah, to it's have nuts. They're like autofiller with like the, you know, check concentration and fill it to the right constant. It was just like, no, like no, I can hire somebody for two machines worth. Like I can hire somebody just to do coolant then. Yeah, 100%. And like I totally understand in those big sort of like aerospace shops where time is money and, you know, they have an unlimited sort of budget. Awesome. I would love to be at that stage where I can get those things that solve a problem and I don't need to think about it ever again. Unfortunately, you know, we're just the the little dudes on the block and we have to sort of mix and mash things together and go from there. But I just feel like there's really no good coolant filter oil to chip separation sort of machines out there. Like you've got the next gen, but the pumps break on those things all the time. Oh, it's garbage. Yeah, we replaced ours with a little giant pump, like I think within the first month or something like yeah. that. And like here, they're, they're like nearly two grand, three grand for that system. Oh, geez. Yeah. That and when you look at it, it's like a little water pump, a little water pump and some plastic like housing. And the, the prices that we just, we get absolutely gouged by resellers here in australia to like 60 percent, 70 percent markups it's nuts so stuff like that just really it affects your monthly weekly cash flow to be able to implement that just to look after coolant yeah and, and it's really like it solves your oil problem but it doesn't solve your chip problem like then yep. you still have to have a chip some some sort of filtering like I, that yep. is a problem i'm currently going through is trying to figure out 
what I want to implement on both of my brothers because, you know, I, I can tell like when there's a lot of fine chips in the the fluid and, you know, f- surface finishes start degrading and all that. Yeah. The only thing I've really found that works the best is using the Freddy. Right. But it's a manual process. That's the only thing. You know, you got to sit there and vacuum out the entire tank, vacuum up all the chips, return the clean coolant. Yeah, that takes, you know what, I don't know. Start to finish, it can take anywhere between 10 and half an hour. But generally, the machine's, you know, not running. Yeah, that's okay in a non-production environment, but it's that, I guess, that lazy factor in me as well. It's like, I just want something that's running in the background that maintains this, and I don't need to think about it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tough. Like, and, and you've got to balance, like you said, you know, cost too. Like, there's... I think it's a 10 micron filter on the speedios for their spindle washdown. You actually yep. commented on Ben's post of his, you know, new nozzle for it, but I, I wanted to add one of those in line with my coolant, but I want to say they were eight or 900 bucks a piece. Yeah. Like, wow. And it's like, man, it's just like a housing with a, a paper filter in it. Like really? Like, does it need to be a thousand dollars almost? Yeah. I feel like just everything in the machining world is just like, way more expensive than any other industry it's like we are always having to buy the snap-on version tools of everything for the yeah. machining world everything yeah, just exactly. has that premium price tag because it's the machining world like they think that like all these shops have millions of dollars spare to spend on you know thousand dollar filters yeah i can only imagine i mean even i think grimsmo came up with his own you know big master homebrew filter and that thing was still 600 bucks or something like that but yep. it's like you know, that might be the budget thing for me. And I might end up just having to do that because yep. I, I want it fil- filtered, but it's, man, it's it's a lot. Yeah, so basically I just got around with like, I make a, I guess a like clean area of the tank where the coolant is sucked out by the, the coolant pump from. Mm-hmm. And I basically just have two gate filters. So I've, I've reused like the Freddy vacuum bags. They're like super cheap, like a couple of bucks for this like reusable big bag filter. And I just cut that up and it basically just gets like elastic band over like a steel grate. And I have like double filters. So, you know, you get your like 100 microns and then down to five microns. And that just basically keeps the dirty side and a clean side. And that seems to be working extremely well, like to the point that I'm not getting chips through my coolant pumps anymore. And it's a pretty low cost, low sort of low tech solution. So hmm. because it's dub- like a, a double filter, you can clean out the coarse filter, say the 100 micron. You can just pull it up, brush the chips off or whatever you want, wash the chips off into the bin and then return it and then pick up the clean one, wash that out, clean it and return it without getting chips into your clean area, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's smart. I like that. Yeah, it's like low tech it seems to be working really good for our process to the point where we used to have surface issues, especially with the um, high-pressure coolant, and now we aren't getting those issues anymore since doing it. So That's awesome. maybe, maybe something like that could work for you, like a little yeah. 3D-printed cage. Well, if, if you've got some time you know, before you pass out after this, if you can send me a picture just so I can see it. Uh, yeah, man, for or, sure. Or you know, sometime in the next day or something. Yep. I'd love to see it and, and see what I can do about it. Yeah. It's something like a little bit of like steel mesh and or, you know, some sort of 3D printed tray. And it's just something that 
you because my coolant pumps on the micron are external to the entire tank like everything on the micron is like thermally isolated like the electronics cabinet the spindle cooling the machine cooling all of that is like isolated from the machine so even like the coolant pumps not connected to the machine or the tank so they oh, wow. just they just have a hose that connects to the tank and it takes it like three meters away to the chiller unit chills the coolant okay. and then returns it back to the machine so by not having the pumps in the coolant it's a lot easier to sort of separate a clean and dirty area on the coolant tank because you haven't got you know obviously you don't have a, a motor within the dirty tank if that makes sense right i don't know it totally like makes most sense. machines do yeah so we'll have a chat off off stream if you like i'm sure we can come up with something I'm all about fabricating random little things that <laughs> save you money <laughs> totally yeah well james i really appreciate appreciate you coming on it was a blast getting to talk to you and learn more about your company and, and really deep dive into knives like I, i've learned quite a bit and want one more now than i did before yeah no worries well yeah if anyone's got any questions just my dms are there have a chat i'm pretty friendly and outgoing and pretty pretty happy to answer any of your questions and yeah i'm really appreciate it thanks so much for inviting me on i never thought you know little old james would get invited onto some sort of big machinist podcast so yeah thanks so much Oh, my, it was my pleasure. And thanks to everyone on the Patreon for supporting the, the show. You know, it lets me bring people like James on and get to pick his brain. And thanks for, for listening. We will be back next week. Cheers.